In the 1870s, artist William Holman Hunt went to the Holy Land. And he painted this now famous picture, Shadow of Death. It depicts a carpenter's shop in Nazareth. In late afternoon sun, Jesus lifts his eyes toward heaven. He, he stretches out his arm as if he is finished with his day's work. The sun low in the sky casts a shadow behind him. And the wooden tool rack on the back wall appears as if his shadow has been crucified. It is a portent of things to come for Jesus. The shadow of death was always upon Jesus. From eternity past, he knew that he was destined to die. That was his purpose. He had a divinely appointed mission. And from that mission... He did not depart. In his book, Truth of God Incarnate, Anglican scholar Bishop uh, Stephen Neal made this statement. Quote, In the Christian theology of history, the death of Christ is the central point of history. Here, all of the roads of the past converge, Hence, all of the roads of the future diverge, end quote. Indeed, history is his story, and Jesus and his mission is at the very heart of it all. In our continuing study through John's Gospel, we are in John chapter 12. And last Lord's Day, I noted that there was a shift in Jesus' description of his, um, his death destiny. Last week in John chapter 12, we found Jesus saying this statement in verse 23. The hour has come. Now up to this time, Jesus was consistently telling the people around him, My hour has not yet come. All the way back to John chapter 2, do we read that? But now, there was a shift. The hour has come. And what caused that shift to take place was a, Greek, a, a group of Greek men who came looking for Jesus. It may be that they were there as he cleansed the temple. It may be that they had heard about him, maybe seen him perform some of his miraculous deeds. We don't know the exact nature of their desired conversation. But they, say, they came and they told Philip, we would like to see Jesus. The hour has come. 
Now, what Jesus meant by that was the hour of his crucifixion, the fulfillment, the high point of his life and mission was at hand. Now, that, 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 that was not something that was a, a surprise to Jesus. He is, after all, God incarnate. He knew the exact day on the calendar he would be crucified. This did not come to, to him as a surprise or a shock. He knew it was coming. But now, in time and space, the hour had come. Our text this morning begins in chapter 12, verse 27. Follow along with me, please, as I read. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that they had heard thunder. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. I divided our text up into three sections. The revelation of the cross, the result of the cross, and the relevance of the cross. Point number one begins in verse 27, where Jesus says, My soul has become Troubled. You'll remember that we called John's Gospel the supplemental gospel. We call the other three Gospels the synoptic Gospels, meaning similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record Jesus' work on, um, or, or rather his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane prior to his betrayal, arrest, and execution. In Matthew chapter 26, we read this statement that Jesus gives to his 11 disciples. Judas, of course, has, has, has gone to betray Jesus. Matthew chapter 26, my soul is deeply grieved, Jesus said, to the point of death. 
The next verse, after he retreats away from his disciples to pray, he says this, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as you, not as I will, but as you will. Luke adds this to our understanding of what went on in that moment in the garden. Luke says, being in agony, Jesus was praying very fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. That was agony. That was intense grieving on the part of Christ. John doesn't say anything about this prayer in Gethsemane. But here we have a parallel passage, and we see consistency in Jesus as he is thinking about this upcoming hour where he would die. My soul has become troubled. The Greek language that's in the, that verb is in the perfect tense, meaning that there is something that's happened in the past with present results. What has happened in the past was that it was a united decision in the Trinity that Jesus would be the one to come live on earth, die a substitutionary death on behalf of those whom the Lord would save. His soul has been troubled. It was troubled in the past. It's still troubled. No doubt you know of the gruesome, horrific, nasty nature of crucifixion. Is that what Jesus was thinking? Was he... Was he grieving? Was his soul troubled over that excruciating physical demand that would be placed upon him in just hours? No. That's not what he was thinking. He was thinking of something far more grievous, far more troubling Jesus didn't have a concern for what he would endure physically as much as what he would endure spiritually. Yes, there would be physical pain involved in his death. Excruciating physical pain. But what, was, would, what would be more was him bearing the sin and the guilt of mankind. Jesus was to become the most spiritually depraved and disfigured individual in history. The weight of sin and guilt 
was so immense, so intense in his soul, that his sweat was as like drops of blood. Yes, he was troubled. He was troubled knowing that because all of that sin would be laid upon his shoulders, the Father would turn his back on him because he had become sin. Now in his humanity, we can easily see how Jesus would be tempted to flinch, to retreat, for him to look for another answer, another way, another... Is, is, is there something else that can be done to accomplish the same task? John records these words coming from Jesus. As he is speaking to himself, to the Father, in the presence of other people. What shall I say then? Father, save me from this hour? Well, he may have been tempted to think that, to pray that. No. This is his resolve. This is the decision of the United Trinity for this purpose I came to this hour. And so boldly without mincing words with a clear and careful resolve Jesus says Father Glorify your name. And verse 28 tells us that there was a voice that came out of heaven. Immediately following Jesus' prayer, Glorify your name, Father. A voice came out of heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it. Again. The Father was glorified when the Son took on the form of a man at the Incarnation. The Father was glorified by Jesus' consistent, sinless, flawless life. Every thought, every decision, every choice Jesus made was without sin. And the Father was in that glorified. Everything that Jesus did, he did because he was instructed uh, by the Father to do that. Everything Jesus said was instructed to him by the Father to say. And he did, and he said, just as the Father instructed him. And in that, the Father was glorified. He had been glorified, and he will be glorified again when Jesus finishes the job. When the mission is complete. 
when it is declared, it is finished. The Father would be glorified again. There were three times that there was a statement from heaven where the Father affirmed the Son physically and verbally. You remember um, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, at his baptism, Matthew chapter 3, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then in the middle of Jesus' ministry on the Mount of Transfiguration before Peter, James, and John, the Father declared, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And now, at the end of his life and ministry, the Father again speaks from heaven. And uh, during, uh, during the week, uh, this, this Passion Week, says, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Now, this, this is not the only time we, we hear these kinds of things coming from heaven. As rare as that is, this is not the only time, or these are not the only times. In uh, the book of Acts, chapter 9, we find this Christian hater, a Pharisee, um, a man with some authority, uh, certainly a skilled, knowledgeable man, a man by the name of Saul. He was on the road to Damascus to round up more Christians in order to put them in jail and to have them executed, when all of a sudden there was this voice from heaven saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This Saul became the Apostle Paul, of course. And in chapter 22 of the book of Acts, he records, um, rehearses what happened in uh, that particular moment when he heard this, this voice from heaven. And he says in Acts 22, verse 9, Those who were with me, Paul writes, saw the light, to be sure, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Oh, they heard the voice of God, the Father. The voice of Jesus, rather. But they didn't understand what was being communicated. Now, in the same way, that takes place in John chapter 12, when the Father confirms his affirmation of the Son and his ministry. If you look at verse 29 of our text, it appears as though there are, are two, uh, two perspectives on this voice they hear from heaven. text reads this way. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying an angel has spoken to him. So there were those who were the anti-supernaturalists who said, that's just thunder. And there were others 
who heard this noise and said, oh, it must be an angel that's speaking to him. I want you to notice this, that for both groups of people, these words spoken by the Father to the Son were indistinct. They didn't know what was being communicated. Look at verse 30. Jesus answered and said, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now, wait a minute. Okay, so so the Father speaks to the Son. And the Son understands clearly what the Father says. And then Jesus says, It's not for me that this voice came. It's for you. But these people didn't understand what was being communicated. Some said it was thunder. Other people said, well, it's got to be an angel or something like that. So what benefit did these people gain? How, How was this beneficial for those who were surrounding Jesus, heard the voice, but didn't understand what the voice was saying. How did that benefit them? Let me ask you a couple questions. How do we know what the Father said to the Son? It's written here in the text. We can read it. How do we know that that's what was said? Nobody except Jesus knew what was said. And Jesus doesn't translate it or doesn't communicate it in language that anybody can understand. How do we know that that's what was said? Well, there are many pieces of scriptural revelation that we don't know until after Jesus' death, after his resurrection, after his ascension, when the Holy Spirit is given to God's people. And when the Holy Spirit is given to them, as Jesus is going to tell his, his, his men in, in just a couple of days, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will teach you all things. So it was after the giving of the Holy Spirit that these uh, disciples, John included, understood exactly what the Father said. Now here's why this is all significant. Jesus said, these words are given for your benefit. But they didn't understand it at the time. Oh, they would. But that's some time down the road. It benefited them in this way. They did not know at the time 
that the father was supporting the son to this degree. I have glorified, I have been glorified, and I will be glorified again. They didn't know that until long after the fact. Meaning that Jesus is there all alone with the Father's affirmation. He had no other support from any other person. Tied closely to that. It was after the Holy Spirit was sent to them that the disciples understood that the death of Jesus was not something that Jesus was doing on his own. This is an intra-Trinitarian choice. From eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit agreed. This is what's going to happen. Jesus is going to be the one to come live an incarnate life, a perfect, flawless life. He is the one that was going to give up his life as a sacrifice. These disciples were benefited for your sakes, Jesus said, knowing that Jesus died alone from a human point of view, Yet, from a divine point of view, they were all in this together. Here's the bottom line. Here is how the disciples benefited from hearing this voice without understanding what was said. They came to know that salvation is from God 100%. It is God's gift of grace. Humans weren't there to support Jesus. They didn't understand what was going on. Yet, the Trinity collectively worked together to make this possible. Jesus being the one who actually died for sinners that's the revelation of the cross point number two second page of your notes the result of the cross the result is uh, uh, a, in a word one of judgment look at verse 31 Jesus says now judgment is upon the world There is condemnation. There is damnation that follows the cross. Now in the next verse and a half, Jesus is going to tell us where that judgment is seen. Where where are we going to find this result? One, he says, is one he he identifies explicitly. The other one is implicitly stated. Now, with regard to the cross and its results, 
Jesus doesn't say anything here about unbelievers. They're not even, they're not even in the discussion. Because uh, what happens to unbelievers is um, not a newsflash. This is old news. If you go back to uh, John chapter 3, uh, Jesus says in verse 18, He who believes in me is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That judgment on unbelievers is already in the books. Jesus doesn't have that in in view. He has two other things in view here that are upcoming with regard to the cross and the resulting judgment. Into verse 31. Now the ruler of this world, whom we identify as Satan, uh, the devil, the accuser of the brethren, um, uh, the prince of the power of the air. The ruler of this world will be cast out. Remember that quote that I, I, I started with by Stephen Neal. Um, J- Jesus is the center of all history. The cross is the center of all history. It was at that point, that, 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 uh, that, that apex, if you will, that the ruler of this world was judged. And he was cast out, uh, marginalized, canceled, if you will, in our culture lingo today. Now, that's, that's, a, that's, a, 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 that's a process. In um, oh, here, let me let me read this this verse from uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter two, uh, verse, um, verse verse fourteen. Through death, he that is Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all of their lives. This one. This one, Jesus, has, through his death, um, freed those who were slaves to the evil one. And, and in, in that sense, the chokehold that Satan had on God's people has been removed. He has been cast down, cast aside. We read further, Revelation chapter 12, verse that he will be cast out of heaven. In chapter 20, verse 3, he will be cast into the abyss. Also in chapter 20, he will be cast into hell, lake of fire and brimstone. There was judgment on Satan at the cross. This foolish one who thought he could usurp the throne of the sovereign almighty one is cast down. Implicitly, Jesus says that there is another judgment in the cross. He's not talking about unbelievers. He's not talking about 
Satan, he's talking about what he himself will endure. Judgment will come to him. He says in verse 32, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. That idea of, 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 of being lifted up um, brings to mind a number of different, um, a, a, a number of different uh, puzzle pieces to, to make sense of, of what Jesus is saying regarding judgment falling upon him. In a, in a typological sense, being lifted up pictures what Moses was instructed by God to do when the Israelites were in rebellion against God. He sent them a plague of snakes. I can imagine no worse plague myself than to have these slitheries all around your feet. Moses was instructed by the Lord, make a cast image of one of these serpents, put it on a pole, and elevate it. Those who look up at that which has been lifted up will be spared. I can't imagine the the faith that it would require while the slitheries are at your feet to look up at another slithery, albeit just an image of one, um, and thereby be spared. That's what God instructed of Moses. And typologically, Jesus is that one who is lifted up. In a spiritual sense, um, Deuteronomy chapter 21, Jesus is, is, um, is the one who is lifted up by being hung on a tree. Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22, Moses writes, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is cursed of God. The Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians tells us in chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Jesus is this one who is lifted up, hanging on a tree, hanging on the cross, made out of a tree. And of course, in a physical sense, Jesus is is lifted up onto the cross where others... Standing below him, look up to him. Jesus said, if I am lifted up from the earth, it will not be because of his own sin, but because of others' sin. Imputed to him, credited to him, laid on his shoulders spiritually. If he is lifted up, dying in that sense, he will draw all men 
to himself. The Greek text tells us um, that he will draw all to himself. The word men is not there. We have to go from the context to say, when Jesus says he will draw all to himself, who's the all? All without exception? No, we know the rest of the scripture teaches that that's not, that's not the case. We go back to verse 26. Well, it's all who serve him. Or we go back to verse 24 in this chapter. It's, it's uh, uh, um, those, those much fruit. Or we go to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to, chapter, to chapter 10 where Jesus talks about the one flock. Or to chapter 11 where Jesus talks about um, uh, those uh, children who are, are scattered abroad. Back in chapter 12, you remember that the Pharisees, um, without their, their full knowledge, prophesied that the world would go after Jesus. And as I've pointed out, when John uses the word world, he is consistently speaking of Jews and Gentiles. Those are the all. People, not without exception, but people without distinction, Jesus draws to himself. Verse 33, John gives us this, test, this uh, commentary. Jesus was saying this about drawing all to himself. Jesus was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? They understood that when Jesus used that phrase, lifted up, he was talking about his own death. They understood that. But there was a bit of a disconnect here. They said, in the law, and I think what they mean by the law is not in a technical, restricted sense to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Old Testament, but he, he, he's ta- they were talking about the Scriptures in general. We have been taught from the Scriptures that, um, that he who is the Son of God or Son of Man, different titles, same individual, this person who is, is uh, um, uh, the Messiah that person is going to last forever. That, that, that person is going to reign forever on David's throne. And that's a correct uh, assessment of what the Scriptures teach. Listen, here's just, just two, two brief passages from Isaiah chapter 9. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Sound familiar? There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. What do you mean that that, that you're going to be lifted up, that you're going to die? What? Daniel chapter 2 where the prophet Daniel is giving, a, giving us a, a history lesson of what is yet to come in terms of the kingdoms of the world. 
And he says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and be an end to all these kingdoms. But it itself will endure forever. Yes, the scriptures clearly teach that the rule and the reign of Messiah will be forever and ever. Amen! But the scriptures also teach that Messiah is going to come and he must be lifted up. He must die first before he can come again for the second time and reign forever and ever. They understood part two. They did not yet understand part one. But, these, but there are scriptures that, that teach part one as well. Psalm 22, Zechariah chapter 13. L- listen to Isaiah 53. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. My servant will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Messiah's role is twofold. He will come and or he, he has come and he will die an ignominious death for the sake of those who would believe and then he will come and he will crush all the kingdoms of this world and reign forever and ever. In verse 35 of our text, Jesus um, doesn't, doesn't continue engaging with the crowd. He cuts to the chase. He goes straight to what's most important, namely the relevance of the cross, point number three. For a little while longer, the light is among you. He's he's speaking of his his physical life. The light himself. He is going to be there for just a little while longer. And he's telling these people in the crowd, I know you have other questions. I know there there are things you don't yet understand. Hang tight. The Holy Spirit's coming. (laughs) You will know. He will lead you into all the truth. Trust me on this. But right now, You need to come into the light. You need to trust Him who is the light. Walk. He says, middle of verse 35. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. 
Light and darkness here do not refer to things that are external. They refer to our inner nature, who we are. Those who trust the light are no longer characterized by darkness. And these become sons of light. Jesus is never called the son of light because his nature doesn't change. He is always light. He is the light of the world. The light for the world. The light that benefits the world. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. Paul says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. I return to the painting that I began with from William Holman Hunt, Shadow of Cross, or the Shadow of Death, rather. I, I want you to notice something different in this painting. You'll notice the second figure, a woman, obviously, maybe Mary, his mother. We're not sure. We don't need to know. Where are her hands? Her hands are touching an ornate chest that is very carefully and meticulously lined with fabric. If it was in our day and age, we'd say that's velvet. Probably something different back in that day. And what's in the chest? A crown. And what is to her immediate left? A footstool. Here is this woman in a posture of obeisance as if she was kneeling before the king opening up this chest of treasures, ready to present the crown to the king. Thinking about those who would be under the authority, the footstool of the king. And her pose is one of shock, one of surprise. She saw the shadow of the Christ hanging on the wall. And it took her back. She was getting ready to crown him the king. 
place his feet on the footstool. Footstool of authority. And yet, he had first to die. It caught everyone by surprise. Nobody saw that coming. Thankfully, it did come. Because now there is meaning to Christ's rule as the king. Martin Luther poignantly captured uh, the effect of Christ's cross in these words. Lord Jesus, thou art my righteousness. I am thy sin. Thou hast taken upon thee what was mine. Thou hast set upon me what is thine. Thou hast become what thou wast not, that I might become what I was not. Father, we realize that there is no one that will ever stand in your presence that is not holy, pure, righteous, undefiled, just like you. There will never be a sinner stained with the impurities of his own poisoned choices. Oh, and yet there will be sinners that stand there. Not with sin-stained hands and minds and hearts and emotions. No, they will be covered in the righteousness of Christ as with a cloak. We will be in heaven, your heaven, enjoying eternity with you, not because of anything we have done, but because of everything Christ has done on our behalf. I pray that you would wake us, stir us, enliven us to see the depth, the perfections, your mercy and your grace to all who believe. In the name of the risen Christ we pray this.